Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Stuart Munro, who's the Managing Director and Patient Safety Product Specialist at Pentland Medical and Innovelt Limited. Now that is a firm which supplies unique and patented patient and staff safety products to the UK healthcare sector. So as you can imagine, quite busy at the moment. Uh, Stuart, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Thank you, Scott. Absolute pleasure having you. Now, Stuart, um, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about the topic of leadership and effective leadership at that. Uh, tell me, what has it been like for yourselves attempting to navigate the uh, the last few weeks with the COVID-19 outbreak? Because I can imagine you've been very, very busy. Absolutely, uh, Scott. It's a unique situation. Um, uh, over 30 years in this industry, I've never experienced anything like this, and I doubt very much anybody has before. Uh, we have a couple of products that are right in the mix for um, improving the current critical situation. Um, we're dealing with the Cabinet Office and, and other organisations to try and ramp up our production and, and make sure we, we, we help out as much as we possibly can. So, uh, you know, as we speak, it's kind of right in the middle of that um, that situation. And my voice is about to give up because of continual um, teleconferences and so on. So, yeah, interesting point. Um, mm. On leadership, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating watching uh, the media absolutely slaughter the world's leadership uh, over this. So that's quite an interesting um, timing for, for this particular topic. It certainly is. Um, and um, there have been a lot of criticism and um, a lot of varied reaction to um, how leaders have approached uh, the whole uh, COVID-19 crisis. Um, you noticed over in uh, China and in Italy, the likes of Xi Jinping, Giuseppe Conte, they were quite proactive, quite quick in locking their countries down and really getting measures in place as quickly as possible. But of course, over here and over in the United States, we were taking a much less hands-on approach before more stringent social distancing measures have now come into place. I mean, even in Sweden, They've actually got bars, restaurants um, still open to this day. Um, But if we sort of take those approaches away from politics and away from this time of crisis, Sir Stuart, um, as a leader, which approach would you generally prefer to take when dealing with difficulties yourself? Are you more of a dive straight in and get on top of the situation as soon as possible sort of leader? Or do you tend to let things play out a bit, see how matters develop and then take action from there? Yeah, we've classed ourselves much more in a thoughtful way. process and don't like an eject type reaction uh, certainly at the moment I'm having to, to operate outside my comfort zone with that but that sometimes happens and that, and that should be part of a profile of anybody I think it's in, in a position like this yeah, certainly. Um, it's, it brings into question that ability of leaders to be not just proactive and have plans in place, but also reactive as well. It's not necessarily rolling with the punches and letting circumstances dictate what you do, but it's about sort of seeing how matters develop and then taking decisions based on changing guidelines, changing circumstances. It's a hugely important quality to have at the moment for today's leaders, isn't it? Yeah, I think uh, I'm certainly being tested to, to the limit here and, and only time will tell actually how this will, this will actually come out. So I'm actually monitoring the performance of my performance at the moment. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting time. It certainly is. And um, did you always imagine um, yourself, uh, Stuart, earlier in your career that you'd end up in a leadership position and having to grapple with challenges such as this? Absolutely not. No, definitely not. I never imagined myself in business, actually. 
Um, it's really a fascinating journey for me. Um, but yeah, completely um, the reverse of uh, where I had my life focused uh, from from younger years. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about that journey um, as well, Stuart. I mean, I, I think that is quite important to touch on because there are a lot of people out there who might believe that a great leader is somebody who is just born with those innate qualities and just ready made for the role. But actually, in reality, it is very much a learning process. You don't have a leader going into a role who is ready made for that role and is going to get every single decision right. They will make mistakes and there will be a learning curve, won't it? I think so, yeah, and it's certainly something that fascinates me is, is that the experience angle is tremendous. You can call on things that you stacked away subconsciously, uh, and time after time, I find that's been very helpful for me. In general sense, I think there are people, though, that are born leaders, um, and I personally prefer a style of leadership that's inclusive. I don't like, you know, domineering, shouting type style and, and, and confrontational type style. I think probably the, the greatest example of leadership I can think of in my lifetime would be um, the Apollo 13 crisis, um, where uh, a young guy called Gene Lai um, took over the leadership really there at NASA during the, 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 the height of the crisis as a 33-year-old man. Uh, and the, the story... Actually, BBC World Service Radio have a podcast on that at the moment. It's a really fascinating listen. Uh, you can actually hear the footage of this guy talking as he spoke at the time of the events that were going on. It's a remarkable story and just a huge example of somebody at really quite a relative young age that dealt with something in front of the world's media uh, and, and just produced an, an amazing ending. So I think that's a great example of leadership. It is absolutely. It's a remarkable example. And um, you talk about the media there, and um, I do want to touch on that a little bit further because the media quite often does play um, a sort of less than productive role when it comes to leadership because there is a lot of media criticism of uh, leaders, especially those in the public eye within politics, sports personalities as well included in that. Um, With that in mind, um, and this idea that leaders are essentially there to be shot at and they live and die by their decisions, do you think that good leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK, or are leaders overly criticised? It goes with the territory, doesn't it, really? I mean, I understand that. I mean, I think this particular crisis is fascinating for me because for many, many years, uh, I've been aware in healthcare that the World Health Organisation has highlighted this issue and it's basically stated time and time again that a situation like this is overdue. So by the natural cycle of things historically. So I kinda I kinda fall into the category actually uh, on this that this herd immunity thing is kinda like I think probably the best way to go because we keep on trying to, to replace nature with all this medical technology and we're keeping people alive they just would simply not have been alive 10, 12, 15 years ago even. Uh, and it's perhaps there's going to be a point where, you know, we can see the overpopulation of the planet being a huge issue. That, that, that nature maybe has to actually redress the balance. So it's a really fascinating situation. And there are, our, our government have actually um, pretty much taken advice from the scientific officer and so on. That there's a, thought of, a school of thought that that's the case. And I kind of, more lean towards that as being perhaps a sensible, balanced approach to 
to dealing with the problem globally. So, yeah, there's been a small reaction. And I think the big problem is obviously that that percentage of people that are dying uh, in, in Italy and Spain has been horrendous because they couldn't help anybody uh, or they couldn't help a certain component of that, that, that dying population. And that's just something we just don't want to in a civilised society consider. So a huge um, focus on, on leadership, but it's not a simple matter. And I think the media just really jump on biomagas dependent on their own position. But there you go. That's my top as well on, on that. Absolutely. And um, they, they really um, sort of haven't helped at times. It's very much, as you say, a media bandwagon of uh, criticism sometimes. And um, it is um, a shame to see um, not only that criticism, but also what's going on abroad uh, with the death tolls there. Um, with um, all of that um, in mind as well, when you talk about um, inclusive leadership, that's quite important, isn't it? Um, for a leader, it's about listening to experts and surrounding themselves with good people who are going to advise them in the best way because it's not just a one-man or one-woman programme being a leader, is it? It's about a team as opposed to just one person. Entirely, and I think the team thing you mentioned there is the key word. Um, it fascinates me, actually, that, the, that a balanced team for me is you need a, a range of skills in there and actually somebody that you would regard normally as not being somebody that could Add some there's a, 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 add something to your your business or, or your, your your aims as a natural um, part of the team, and I'm thinking more kind of like somebody who's very slow and methodical. Um, but actually, having somebody in the team that's very slow and methodical can be very useful, and it provides the balance that you need. So, team being the, the key word, but also fascinating that you know you, you don't populate that team with the same personality. Mm, absolutely and I think the um the culture that um a leader can instill on that team as well and on um, their business is also hugely important isn't it to try and nurture the best out of those individuals as possible yeah and that's where this, this factor of the style of management comes in I just can't stand people personally that, that just ball and shout and I think a chef the chef programs are great on that they've, they've kind of highlighted that style of management I get that in the sense that they work in an industry where it's an instant reaction. So they send a plate out, and if it's not good, they're going to get it right back. And it's, it's just such a high-pressure environment that way. But you would contrast that with the G-Money example I gave earlier of somebody who didn't need to resolve to Ethisponics. It's quite obviously not his personality, mm-hmm. but just demonstrated supreme leadership through knowledge and respect for, for what he, he could do. Absolutely, yeah, because people can really step onto the breach, especially in times of crisis, can't they? And they really sort of take charge themselves. It's not just about the people at the helm, is it? Um, people do bring the best out in themselves when they're having to deal with difficult situations such as this. Completely. That's my situation right now. I have a fantastic uh, group of people now having to try and adapt to home working and all sorts of things going on. And, and they've, they've risen to the occasion so far, so I'm, I'm very proud of that, yeah. Yeah, and it's fantastic that they um, have really taken that in their stride um, in that way as well. Um, Stuart, I am conscious of uh, running out of time today, but before we do go about wrapping things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for yourself and for Pentland Medical and what you hope to achieve in that time, particularly through the COVID-19 outbreak and out the other side. Yeah, it's, it's great in the sense that um, normally we are the, the type of company that turns up a procurement store for the NHS and they just don't want to know us because 
they have a they will have a solution that's unique, and they want somebody that turns up with an answer that's going to reduce their immediate budget requirements. So that's completely changed. on three hundred and sixty degrees, and I think from this crisis, we're probably going to grow substantially because of the, the technologies that we've been trying to sell to the NHS for the last twenty years. To be honest. Um, so yeah, it could be interesting times ahead for us. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there will be opportunities, of course, for business. And let's hope that it is primed to essentially hit the ground running and really take advantage of those opportunities as much as possible. Um, Stuart, I have to say it's been a really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the programme today. And I think it would be fantastic to perhaps have you back on in a few months time just to look back at all of this retrospectively and see how all of those things have uh, panned out. So thank you so much for coming on, speaking to myself for the benefit of our listeners. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Coming up next on the programme, we hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, Hopefully you enjoy listening to the interview just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew. That's coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at, the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And... um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost I'd been I was a Middlesex player I was mm. captain of Middlesex all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later I've scored a test century which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly I started thinking wow hold on I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, 
mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the, the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open-top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished 
for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. Let's. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but 
what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over to the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so, I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so... You know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was, that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, 
especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top ten cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare; it's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help. Uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know... we. I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We're, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health. 
and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one, day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.